Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Rancor reigns in American politics. Is it possible these days to regard politics as an arena that enriches and ennobles? Matthew D. Wright responds with a resounding yes in his 2019 book, A Vindication of Politics, on the Common Good and Human Flourishing. Wright takes issue with the instrumentalist view of politics and walks readers through key debates in the field of natural law and the ideas of titans in it, primarily John Finnis and Alexander Alistair McIntyre, but discussing along the way some of their peers, such as Robert P. George and Mark Murphy. In the section of the book on the relationship of government and the state to family matters, Wright takes on the notions of Amy Goodman and Robin West, which allow for a level of interference in the family sphere greater than conservative thinkers could ever conceive of countenancing. Not only are living thinkers addressed, but so are such figures as Aristotle, Edmund Burke, and Abraham Lincoln. Wright shows us how to conduct ourselves on the basis of civic friendship, another major theme in his book. With Wright's help, we learn what terms such as the common good and human flourishing mean in both everyday life and in the field of philosophy. He clarifies what terms such as political culture, political association, and political community mean and enables us to grasp what it means to think institutionally and what the moral imagination is. Wright is hearteningly hopeful and shows that being part of a political community is easier than we think, is character building, and is more vital than ever. His book is indeed a vindication of a part of human society, politics, that we cannot escape, and which encompasses everything from the workings of the individual family to what love, justice, and virtue look like through the lens of politics. Give a listen. Hello, everyone. My name is Hope J. Lehman, and I am one of the hosts of the New Books Network. I'm talking today with Matthew D. Wright, author of the 2019 book, A Vindication of Politics on the Common Good and Human Flourishing. Thank you for joining us today, Matthew. Thanks for having me, Hope. I'd like to start. Thank you. I'd like to start the interview by asking you a few general questions about terminology. Let's start with the title of your book. (laughs) We'll start with the word vindication. What does the subject, why does the subject of politics need vindication? From whose charges and from whose charges and what is the nature of their indictment? Before I give you a chance to say anything, if you don't mind, I'd like to read from the description of your book given by the publisher of the University of Press of Kansas. This is what they say. Responding to recent influential arguments for the instrumentality of the political common good, Matthew D. Wright's A Vindication of Politics addresses a lacuna in natural law political theory by foregrounding the significance of political culture. Rather than an activity defined by law and government, politics emerges in this account as a cultural enterprise that connects generations and ennobles our common life. Now, I'd like to ask you, Matthew, what exactly is natural law theory and what does, where does the term human flourishing come from? What is instrumentality? What is the common good? Let her rip, Matthew. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, Hope. There's um, there's a lot there. There's a lot there. Yeah, I, I think know. as <laughs> yeah, as the uh, I, uh, as the blurb on the book indicates, uh, the I, I'm entering in to a um, a question that's a live one within the uh, within the natural law uh, tradition and in contemporary debates in natural law 
um, among natural lawyers, whether or not politics is a um, politics is something of intrinsic good. And so maybe maybe I should start with um, maybe I should start with the ideas of intrinsic goodness and instrumentality. Um, the question is really, is, is politics something that we want for uh, its own sake? Does um, engaging in the political sphere, being part of a political community, um, is, is that something that makes a, um, a, an essential or a fundamental contribution to cultivation of uh, of human social capacities such that if we weren't engaged in politics, there would be something important missing in our lives. Um, so I, I often, I, I often uh, point to an analogy to the family. Uh, I think um, we can readily recognize um, that familial association is something that is of intrinsic value. That is, we don't have to give a further reason um, as to why we take time to be involved with our families. Uh, rather, fa- families are sort of their, their own end. We, we spend time with our families because it uh, because we we love uh, we uh, we love our spouses and children and so forth and and uh, cultivating family life is something that's just its own good now it um, people who never really have a chance to be connected to a family um, or to know their families to um, or to uh, either know their birth families or be adopted into families they can um, get along in life, but I think we all recognize that aside from um, aside from involvement in a family and experiencing that that, uh, that social good, there's something significant that's lost. Um, and so the question that that uh, I'm asking and this is a question that um, natural law theorists have, have been concerned with is asking, whether uh, asking whether politics is something uh, analogous to that. Um, now, I I would want to maintain, and I think certainly all um, I I think all natural law theorists um, maintain that um, the fa- the familial association is of of greater importance than um, than the political association. But I and in my view, you can have a sort of rank ordering, and you and you can say. Uh, you can say that politics is an intrinsic good, something that is valuable in its own sake, um, and and not be committed to saying it is the most important good. This is an this is a significant um, way that the uh, Thomistic natural law tradition, even though it's rooted in Aristotelian uh, philosophy and political thought. This is an important difference between uh, Aquinas and Aristotle. For Aristotle, the uh, the political community is uh, is kind of a there's a sort of a totalizing effect um, in Aristotle's political thought, where individuals and um, uh, associations within the community, like the family, like religious groups, and so forth, are directed toward the good. Of the political community, politics becomes the highest good, and other forms of association become subsumed 
in um, become subsumed in the political uh, political association. Yeah, I think in um, Matthew used a term there, Thomistic, and I just want to remind listeners you're referring to the philosophy that based on Thomas Aquinas. For those people yes. that don't know that term, so yes, yeah, that's right, that's right, yeah, and maybe uh, it, it might be a good uh, good time here to turn to the the other question that you asked um, about what what is what is natural law theory. Um, so I've been talking about this this. Uh, notion of intrinsic goodness or instrumentality of the political community, that, that, um, those questions and that conversation as I, as I approach them is within, uh, the larger, uh, philosophical, uh, construct of the nat of the natural law tradition. And the idea of, of, um, of natural law is simply that there is a there's a universal uh, moral order that is um, that is uh, kind of woven into the structure of things, as it were. Aquinas, um, uh, in the work of Thomas Aquinas, is is sort of the locus classicus of the natural law tradition. He develops uh, he de- he develops it in detail in his. Uh, a section in the Summa Theologia, um, which is often referred to as his treatise on law. But Aquinas says that the natural law is the imprint of the uh, divine or eternal reason on the created order. So that there are, um, in the in the structure of things, in the nature of things, everything from you know the the um, the nature of animals of plants. Uh, and so forth to the the nature of um, creatures such as hu- such as human human beings that have a rational nature. There is uh, there's an internal um, uh, a, sort of a natural ordering or directedness toward um, uh, toward fundamental goods or um, fundamental basic forms of flourishing that. Um, uh, that essentially inform the inform we how we understand what's right and wrong, how we understand uh, what's good and bad, and how we pursue um, how we pursue living well. Um, so the natural law is something that's universal and transcendent. Another important part of of uh, the natural law uh, tradition is the is the idea that at at a basic level. At a basic level, all um, all human uh, all uh, all people have access to the natural law. So there's a there's a, a kind of knowledge of the natural law, or or an ability to to uh, to reason about natural goods and and uh, cultivate knowledge and the ability to act uh, to act uprightly to mm-hmm. act. Uh, justly and to achieve flourishing. So, if you think of uh, with you in the in the uh, specifically Christian tradition, uh, the Apostle Paul talks about in Romans two. Um, he's talking to a Jewish audience, but he says the the Gentiles who do not have the law, and he, there there he means the Mosaic law. They don't have the Mosaic law, and yet they follow its uh, follow its precepts naturally. I'm paraphrasing here, but he says this indicates a law written on their hearts. 
mm-hmm. within the Christian tradition, that's that's uh, uh, in, uh, been interpreted to point to this idea of of a internal uh, awareness or knowledge of the fundamental moral order and structure uh, structure of the universe. So that's an innate innate moral sense or an innate moral core. Right. Inherent moral core. That's right. That's right. Aquinas talks about this as, um, and this is in the treatise on law, he refers to uh, fundamental uh, or basic human inclinations uh, that are directed to uh, certain goods. So he makes a distinction between he sort of separates out um, um, goods that are at the level of all living things, goods that are at the level of all animal life, and goods that are at the level of um, rational life. So at the level of all living things, we see that anything that is alive is inclined to preserve its life. So he, so he, this, so this is a fundamental inclination toward a basic good. And life is that good, so we understand we understand the preservation of life and something like um, it being always wrong to take innocent human life, being immediately derived from that as a precept of uh, the pre- precept of the natural law. At the level of animal um, animal life, he points to fundamental inclinations to. Um, uh, to procreate and to educate educate the young that result from that uh, pro- that procreation. So um, so those the, those goods and natural law theorists have, uh, have developed this I, uh, I, idea into uh, you know an understanding of the basic goodness of of family life. Um, but so a fundamental inclination to procreation and education, then at the specific level of rational uh, rational life, human life, uh, he points to the basic inclinations to live in society, our living community, and to know the truth about, uh, know the truth about God. I'm so sorry, this is Aquinas? This is Aquinas rather than, than St. Paul? Right. Now, I'm, yeah, now I'm talking about, now I'm talking about Aquinas. Okay, just wanted so to clarify they, that. Right. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So that is, um, these are fundamental human inclinations that as the, um, as, uh, the new natural law theorist, which, um, John Finnis, who I interact with, uh, extensively in the book, uh, and also, also folks like, um, like Robert George, um, the way they talk about this is that, that these fundamental goods are these basic human goods provide uh, the the intelligibility or make human action intelligible aside from being oriented to these goods uh, oriented to these goods in some way human action just it just uh, becomes unintelligible and can't can't be rational and thus in a in a, in a fundamental sense will ultimately fail to be uh, fail to be moral well, does, that make, does that make sense? I do have one question, and what is how does instrumentality play into this? You refer to John Finnis's. I'm going to spell that by the way. It, Finnis for people who are not familiar with him. John Finnis, F I N N I S. 
That's you right. Refer to, you refer to his instrumentality thesis. Could you tell us what that is and why you take up why you? It's you. You the book is very respectful towards Venice, but you have you call what he makes a crucial illusion. And I wonder if you could or a, a major mistake that or I don't. Oh, right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to start out by saying that uh, uh, John Finnis is a tremendous um, uh, and extraordinarily important uh, uh, legal and political philosopher who I've uh, learned a tremendous amount from. And and I think, as you see in the book, in important ways, rely on categories uh, that he talks about um, uh, or that he establishes in thinking about uh, the political common good, uh, even though I'm ultimately critical of his um, of the argument that he makes about um, about the political common good. So yeah, so what is his um, what is his instrumentality uh, thesis? I, I referred to the new natural law. There really there sort there are sort of two different areas of of um, uh, d- debate, I guess, among um, among natural law theorists and the and the the kind of modifications or um, what the new natural law theorists argue are clarifications of what that what the Thomistic understanding of natural law is. There's a there there uh, there's an ethical thesis that has to do with how we have access to how we understand. Um, uh, what the, what the requirements of the natural law are, and that's related to the basic human goods that I was referring to. But there's also a political thesis, and that's what um, that's what my concern is um, with in the book. And um, uh, yeah, so I, I don't really talk about get into the ethical um, uh, the ethical particularities and arguments there. But the the uh, the political thesis is. Um, uh, and John Finnis has, um, I mean, the new natural law theory um, is developed. And, that's, and that's, that's a term I understand that he himself shies away from. Is He doesn't care for the term the new natural law. Is there a reason? Right. Why? I don't think, yeah, no, uh, none of the new natural law theorists particularly like uh, like the term, although I think they've sort of, uh, they accept it. I don't, it's not, it, uh, I, it's not really taken to be, pejorative, although I think, yeah, they don't like it because the, the, the claim is that um, the, um, the arguments that they're putting forward are actually, in fact, the correct interpretation of, of, uh, of Thomas Aquinas. And if that's, if they're right about that, then certainly it, um, uh, you know, it's not new natural law, it's just the natural law uh, or, or Thomistic natural law. Where, though, um, you know, I think it's accurate to describe it as new natural law is that there are significant divergences from the way that um, the, the way that Thomas have inten- I have uh, has sort of traditionally understood Aquinas. And this is particularly the case with the political thesis. And so, so I think um, John Finnis is making an argument that's um, that's new about how we should understand what the right uh, what the right teaching is or, or uh, philosophical understanding uh, that Aquinas has about what the political common good is. So in that sense, it is a, it is a kind of new natural law. Um, so you, you use the term revisionist. So Alexander McIntyre and Finnis 
and Mark Murphy and Robert P. George, would they all be revisionists? Or is it only Finnis that's a revisionist? I wonder what you mean by who, who falls with under the rubric revisionist in natural law theory? Yeah, well, I think I take um, I, uh, Mark Murphy's position is um, is somewhat, you know, where, where he falls in relation to Finnis's theory is is not entirely uh, clear to me. His his um, his theorizing about the common good is is um, I mean, we can talk about that more. There's certain things that I really um, uh appreciate and rely on in, in, in the way that Murphy and the way that Murphy talks about it, but he's doing, he's doing somewhat, something uh, somewhat different, but I mean, so the main, the main thing that I, uh, that I say is revisionist is this idea that um, politics is an instrumental good. The, the, what, uh, uh, what Finnis calls it is the political common good is um, an instrumental good. Now by, by that, he means that we don't engage in, in politics for, um, for its own value, but rather politics is oriented to creating the conditions, the social conditions of peace and order um, that are necessary to facilitate the flourishing or the ability to flourish um, of individual persons. And, uh, but also, and this is very important, a group, uh, uh, sub-political associations like the family, the church, um, institutions and groups in civil society, like, like universities, associations that pursue fundamental human goods. Now, sometimes the, um, the position here is sometimes misunderstood, and uh, there have been pieces uh, pieces published criticizing uh, Robert George, for example, in uh, in 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 saying that um, the instrumentality, what I refer to in the book as the instrumentality thesis, the instrumentality thesis essentially instrumentalizes all social. Uh, activity, all, all associations to the individual good. Um, but that's a, actually, that's a misunderstanding of the view. The, the important thing, or the important thing is that whereas Aristotle and, and the tradition, uh, the Thomistic tradition, the way Aquinas has been traditionally understood is that is, is, is making the claim that mankind is a political animal. Uh, which is to say, fundamentally, we flourish within political communities. The instrumentality thesis holds something uh, closer to the view that man is a social animal, meaning that politics serves to provide the conditions necessary for flourishing at other levels of association, primarily uh, the church and the family, but also, like I said, other other associations like like universities, um, Boy Scouts, sporting groups, and that that sort of these these things that pursue um, key aspects of of, uh, of human flourishing. Um, so 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 you're saying that Robert George emphasizes the in, the, the individual level too much? No, no, I don't think so. 
I don't think so. I, I think that um, the new the the uh, the instrumentality thesis of the new natural law does not commit you at all to um, to individualism. The only thing that it commits you to is to saying that human flourishing isn't fundamentally uh, realized or brought about at the political level. It's, uh, it's instead brought about at the level of sub-political associations. And by sub-political, I don't mean a less important than politics. I'm not trying to um, uh, insinuate that, but I just mean the, the associations that are not as large as the political association and the associations that are in some ways contained within the uh, political association, although that's it's, it's a problem. It's a problematic term because, of course, the um, the church uh, and religious associations, insofar as they are directed toward uh, transcendent uh, spiritual goods, or what uh, Thomas Aquinas referred to uh, called um, uh, beatitude perfecta, you know, perfect beatitude and blessedness in the vision of God, the church transcends the political community. So to refer to it as a sub-political association isn't, uh, isn't accurate um, in every way, but also churches in the temporal, um, in the temporal order exist within political communities and are in important ways, um, you know, members of the political community and promote the common good of the political community. So that's what I mean by sub-political associations. So no, I, would, I wouldn't say that any of the new natural law uh, theorists or anyone who holds, the, holds this view of uh, instrumentality of the political common good um, fall into the error of individualism. It's really, it's a different argument. The argument is really about, does politics provide some form of flourishing that um, some some form of flourishing and cultivation of the human social capacity that we don't really get on uh, get on other levels. Well, you write that that uh, in your book you say fitness wishes to maintain a distinction between the political and the specifically political, and then you go on to say Finnis's differentiation of the common good of political community and the political common good is highly problematic when it comes to clarifying and assessing the character of political life and its relationship to human flourishing. So it's, it's very intricate or very densely argued on Finnis's part about the difference between the political and the specifically political. Could you elucidate that a little for us? Yeah, the, um, yeah, and it is a, um, it's a complicated, I mean, Finnis's argument about the common good is, is, um, is, is very detailed and complicated, and uh, that that chapter in the book, in my criticism or my critique of Finnis, is one of sort of the most uh, in the weeds chapters of the book because I'm I'm really I'm I'm do my best to do justice um, to do justice to Finnis, um, uh, and not uh, simplify any uh, simplify any of his argument, but the so the. Um, with the passage you referred to there, he um, Finnis differentiates between the specifically political, or what he calls the political common good, 
and what he calls the common good of political society. Now, the difference there is the political common good or the specifically political are the things that the things that uh, um, pertain the things that pertain uh, to law and government, the things that the uh, that the law is concerned with, the things that the civil magistrate is concerned with, the public good. He also so the political common good and the public good are the same the same thing in Finnis's argument. But the public good or the political common good is that is that realm of society uh, for which or for which the magistrate is responsible. So the realm within which politics happens. The common good of political society, on the other hand, describes um, the the whole the whole realm of the community. Um, so the the common good of political society includes the um, the flourishing of families, includes the flourishing of universities and churches and so forth, because, um, you know, so you, you, within, within the American context, everything, um, everything that dwells within the, the sovereignty of the United States of America is in a sense, uh, part of the common good of, uh, of our political society and our, uh, our political order is directed toward promoting and enabling the flourishing of everyone and every, um, every basic association that dwells, uh, that inhabits, you know, this, this, the land within our borders. Um, I think one question I had is that, is that Finnis is more, uh, he's much more all in or at the, at the higher level of society, because you're right. He finds no connection, Finnis finds no direction connection between the law and the individual for the sake of that person's virtue. It's, it seems that he's not particularly inclined to tell people how to cultivate their own, vir, vir, how to, how to be, be more virtuous. He's more interested in the society functioning rather than the individual. Is that correct? Or Yeah, then this is, this is an area where I... Um, um, I mean, it kind of gets to the heart of my critique of Finnis. And I think earlier you referred to, I say he makes a basic elision. Um, mm-hmm. there, there, are two, there are two concepts that, um, uh, that I think he moves. So, um, yeah, two concepts that he elides. Um, the, one is, um, the one is the idea of virtue all round. And the other is... The idea of when this is this is the term I use. Finnis does not use this term, but virtue simpliciter. That is virtue for its own sake. Finnis is, um, uh, I mean, one of the primary uh, features of his argument is he demonstrates all the ways that the law is not concerned with um, virtue all round. It's not. There are certain aspects of virtue. That the law is not um, the the law. It's it's not within the uh, authority or the appropriate jurisdiction of the legislature to be concerned with um, all forms of virtue. So, for example, and this is this is an example uh, Aquinas gives. 
the law can rightly rightly um, direct the citizen towards actions of martial courage. So the the um, law can can uh, conscript citizens to serve in the military in defense of the political community, um, and and require actions that will cultivate um, uh, cultivate courage. Um, and so martial courage is an appropriate um, appropriate aim of the hmm. law. But the law does not uh, appropriately direct itself to uh, citizens showing friend uh, showing courage in friendship. So, if there was a law that said something like uh, all all citizens all citizens must speak up in defense of their friends whenever their reputations are sullied or their character called into question, something like that. Uh, you know, aside from the practical questions of whether or not you could enforce something like that, Aquinas says this isn't even appropriate, um, uh, an appropriate subject for the law because this is courage as it relates to the private good of friendship, and the private good of friendship is not appropriately directed toward the common good. So this is just an example of the way that the law is not concerned with. The law is not concerned with virtue all round, um, uh, all forms of virtue. This is an important distinction between Aquinas and Aristotle. It should be it should be noted. There's no real distinction or, or no. Uh, it's unclear in Aristotle's uh, articulation of the way that the law relates to virtue. It's unclear that there's any sort of line that the that that. Um, that the law or that cordons the appropriate jurisdiction of the law. The law just cultivates virtue uh, for, for Aristotle and full flourishing. It's different for Aquinas. And, uh, and this is, I think one of the key and important features um, that, um, that Finnis highlights is that the law doesn't, um, uh, isn't responsible for virtue all around. However, (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Let me just let me just finish this point. Um, and this is I, I just have to say this is what I argue. I can't go through and demonstrate this in this conversation. In this conversation, but my, my argument is that um, Finnis, in talking about the law, does not concern itself with virtue all round. He in, he imports the idea of the law is not concerned with virtue simpliciter. That is, the law is not concerned with virtue for its own sake. Because what, because what he argues is, yes, yes, the legislator does want citizens to cultivate political virtues like justice, like martial courage, and so forth. But the reason why the legislator wants citizens to cultivate these virtues is uh, is for the sake of maintaining the common good. So the legislature the, the legislator then is not concerned with the cultivation of virtue in in citizens because it's just simply good for citizens to exercise uh, exercise the virtue of justice. Uh, you know, and have an attachment to the common good of the of the community, or to exercise martial 
uh, courage. The Finnis refers that intentionality of the legislature and cult, uh, the legislator in cultivating virtue. He refers that intentionality to the legislator's responsibility for maintaining the conditions of the common good. The problem with that is once you make that once you make that move. Once you attribute that or limit the intentionality of the legislator in that way, you have decided the question of the instrumentality of the political common good. So my, because if you, if you have no real intention of cultivating virtue in citizens because it's simply good for them, the only, the only thing that explains that is the uh, the association for which you're responsible is not intrinsically good so because be it, more, if it, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just to say, so you would be more in line with Robert P. George, who, as I understand it, argues that the state does have a a reason, a motivation to instill virtue in its citizens for their for their good, and Finnis does not. That's a that is a. Um, you know, I am not. I'm not sure. I, to be honest, I'm not sure where uh, where Professor George comes down on that. I mean, you hit what you know. One of his his uh, keystone books, I guess, his first book, Professor George's, is uh, Making Men Moral, mm-hmm. and um, and certainly he 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 um, you know the the purpose he argues in favor of the tradition of the purpose of the law is. Um, or one of the fundamental purposes of the law is to cultivate virtue. It's been a long time since I've read Making Men Moral, um, and I'm not sure if, um, to be honest, I'm not sure if uh, Professor George specifically addresses this question with the kind of specificity that um, that Finnis does in his argument. Professor George has written He's written some on uh, the instrumentality of the political common good, but um, not not in the not in the detail that uh, in the detail that Finnis has. I know that um, yeah. So you're raising you're raising a great question that I'm not exactly sure what the the answer to it is. Even though um, so, Professor George does hold to the instrumentality of the political common good. Um, well, on a related matter, you were mentioning um, civic friendship and the state's role in cultivating it. And you had an interesting um, line in your book about civic. You're very much in favor of civic friendship and you write very movingly about it and connect it to civic friendship with patriotism. But you write also the authoritarian tem- temptation is to attempt to superintend civic friendship via the requirements of citizenship. So it can be almost like you must it's almost like right now where they're saying you must be anti-racist in order to it's it in order to prove that you're civically friendly it's it's like it's a mandate that that it's it's kind of complicated but could you could you elaborate on what you mean by when the state is requiring it civic friendship that is right yeah i think it's a tricky uh you know it is a tricky thing in that um I, you know, and, and it's actually, this relates to what we were talking about, how the law cultivates virtue. There are all sorts of things that um, the law is trying to do or trying to cultivate, but can't simply, um, can't simply mandate 
or bring about, uh, you know, the, the law, it's often said the law is a, the law is a blunt instrument. And um, the, you know, the problem with, the problem with cultivating virtue and, uh, and intentionality, I'm sorry, in cultivating virtue and friendship, specific friendship, both of these things are dependent upon the, um, dependent upon the interiority of the person, the, the, you know, the intention, attitudes, affections, and so forth. These are the sorts of things that can't be, um, can't be, uh, required, um, but can only be, uh, facilitated and facilitated and encouraged. I think that the way that the, you know, the, the, the way that the legislator goes about, uh, encouraging civic friendship is providing, um, uh, providing the kind of institutional connection. Uh, and this is where I find uh, Edmund Burke really uh, helpful in thinking about the significance of political culture in, um, in establishing, um, establishing conditions in which civic friendship can flourish and, um, and uh, maintain consistency over, over generations. Um, I was going to ask you, Matthew, could you give us an example of, of prominent people or people, what would be an example of a civic friendship? Yeah, you, you, a, a particular, uh, particular people that, um, um, that demonstrate yeah. civic friendship, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would, I would point to, um, and so I'm out at Biola University a few um, years ago. We had um, uh, we had Ryan Anderson and John Corvino oh, yes, uh, on right. yeah on campus to uh, to debate religious liberty and um, and uh, discrimination uh, specifically as it relates to uh, to gay marriage and and gay rights uh, and so forth. I think that they are um, prime examples of a commitment to civic friendship. Uh, there's a Thomas Thomas Gilby um, who said, which this this quotation comes to me by way of uh, John Courtney Murray, but he, uh, I believe I'm getting this right. He says civilization is formed or maintained by citizens being locked in argument. That I, it's a famous um, famous quotation from Gilby, and it it it, it is it's fundamental. It's fundamental to the political uh, to the political process. That well, citizens, I'm, just gonna, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, yeah, that that citizen citizens being uh, committed to engaging in debate and engaging in pursuing um, uh, pursuing policies that promote um, the common good as they as they see it in a way that's consistent with the forms and structures of of the political community. So when uh, someone like Corvino, John Corvino, and Ryan Anderson come at, and they're they are um, you know coming at coming at these questions from very different yes. uh, yeah very different positions. Uh, John Corvino uh, is a was a prominent advocate of gay marriage prior to um, uh, prior to Obergefell, and Ryan Anderson is a prominent um, prominent uh, proponent of traditional marriage. Um, and, uh, you know, and now that, um, gay marriage is the law of the land, there are, uh, 
all sorts of complicated questions about the nature of religious liberty and ongoing questions about the nature of marriage. Um, but they, they are, um, I think, demonstrating, uh, demonstrating that the way that this sort of um, vigorous argument about the common good needs to, needs to go forward. Um, I just want, I just want to mention on that, on that point, Matthew, that on, on the James Madison program in American ideals and institutions website, there was a, a panel discussion about maybe 20, about five years ago now or so that Ryan Anderson and John Curvino were featured that Robert George moderated. And it's, it's, it's yeah. very, very much worth watching because they're both they're Everyone involved is gentlemanly and courteous and, and civil and they're obviously deeply uh, uh, in deep disagreement, but it's really it's really an inspiring example of, of what you're talking about. I mean, just if people want to see it, see those men in action on a video, it's very good. I wanted yeah. to, I wanted to ask you another example. Would 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 the friendship between Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Antonin Scalia be an example of a civic friendship? Oh yeah, that- yeah. That I think I think so. I think so. Um, you know, there's a. Um, I think it's also a personal, uh, a personal friendship. I mean, you know, it's within the context of, of their, you know, their public discharging their public duties that they interact and then, you know, and then begin to develop a, a personal friendship. And, um, and I think actually uh, Ryan Anderson and John Corvino have, you know, have developed a personal friendship as well as have folks like uh, Robert George and Cornell West. Absolutely. Um, you know, I think these are all great examples of civic friendship. It's important, though, to say civic friendship doesn't entail the kind of personal friendship. It doesn't necessarily entail, I should say, the kind of personal friendship that develops um, that develops in these examples that we're that we're talking about. Um, you know, because you just you don't have interaction with, uh, you know, with, with citizens, uh, with your fellow citizens at a personal level. Um, you know, and, and it is, um, it's, it's problematic. And this is something that Aristotle points out. It's probably civic friendship is a real thing. Um, because what, what civic friendship, um, fundamentally entails is a mutual understanding among citizens of goodwill and a concern for the common good of the community, and a commitment to pursue that common good according to the um, according to the procedures for making, um, you know, debating, uh, debating what the common good is, and making laws that that establish the parameters of of action, uh, uh, allowable action within the community. Um, but that that goodwill. That goodwill is is necessary, and it describes a real thing. But it does it doesn't mean that citizens are going to have you know a sort of personal connection and affection uh, for each other. That that's a sort of different kind of thing. I think the the important and this is this is something that I that I I, I guess I kind of reasoned myself to in uh, thinking through civic friendship. The importance of recognizing that civic friendship is not personal friendship mm. is that um, what it necessitates is a kind of um, 
cultural repository, what I call the repository of goodwill, things within the culture that mark and memorialize and provide, um, uh, I, I guess, facilitate the expression or provide occasions for uh, citizens to uh, express and to observe being expressed from other citizens that we that we have this commitment we have this shared project we have this uh, common good that not only I'm committed to but my fellow citizens are committed to and the the thing is uh, that why this is so uh, important is it be- is because the repository of goodwill provides the social um, I get the social fabric or the or the the cultural content that informs relationships of civic friendship, so that when you engage in uh, in argument and you know you see this sort of thing um, on uh, social media all the time, you know there will be uh, there will be a, uh, a, a clash between Black Lives Matter protesters and uh, and Trump uh, and Trump supporters. Uh, you know, very often that, you know, the, those sorts of encounters are, are um, very, uh, you know, very unpleasant and aren't, aren't examples of fr- civic friendship at all. From time to time, though, from time to time, though, you see people who are willing to talk to each other. And I think um, it, um, inherent in that, and in the in the instances of this that that I've seen, and what be what is uh, begins to be communicated is that okay, we both have we both have a commitment to to this country and to its institutions. We are very uh, we are very divided about what that um, you know what the problems are and what the way forward is. Um, but there, there is a, um, there's a kind of commonality of committed, uh, committed citizenship that can inform, uh, in, can inform that argument, uh, inform that argument between citizens. I think it is essential, um, and hugely important that, and, and this is, this is what I would point to as, one of the most significant things that the that the uh, magistrate or the legislate legislator does to promote civic friendship is to protect and perpetuate and to educate in the cultural, the the political culture that that is that uh, the the political culture of traditions. Of um, Edmund Burke refers to uh, to the gallery of portraits, the sort of the the icons of of a people's history and tradition that embody the uh, the values that define the political community. So something like uh, I would George Washington's uh, commitment to uh, in the way that he demonstrated a selfless public service. Um, it, the a, a commitment to um, fostering and highlighting and educating in the political culture that informs the relationship among citizens, so that when citizens meet, um, you know, when the when the lines of uh, when the lines of protesters meet, 
or when um, or when people you know stand up in a town hall meeting and are and are yelling at each other or arguing you know or arguing what kind of um, political uh, culture do they are are they uh, are they embedded in are they invested in or are they are they committed to that will then inform the argument that they have in that moment in a, uh, I think it's, you know, um, I think it's been observed by many people for some time. One of the great failures of our political um, moment that's leading to a tremendous uh, dissolution of our social and political fabric is that we have, um, we don't really have the kind of um, civic education and intentional um, robust um, cultivation of a political culture that's necessary to inform citizens so that they are able to engage fellow citizens with a kind of with a kind of friendship. So the um, in my view, the political culture piece is is really vital to um, uh, to enabling civic friendship. And it's the pri- it's one of the primary responsibilities, of the um, one of the primary responsibilities of government is to is to cultivate the the kind of political culture that's necessary for civic friendship. Aristotle has a famous um, famous line where he where he says if the um, oh gosh I'm I'm blanking on it what it exactly what it exactly is but it's something like when if the the where there is friendship. Where there's friendship, there's no need of justice, or friends have no need of justice. So they, that the the um, if friendship and the in the context of civ- of civic friendship can be cultivated, um, many of m- many of the problems that we engage with, you know, the necessity of law um, and justice to hold people in check, those problems. And those intense conflicts begin uh, begin to dissipate uh, when civic friendship and goodwill uh, inform how citizens interact. Now, I think it should be said. I mean, I mean, this is obvious. Uh, we're we, we're we're a far cry from that um, at this moment in American political history, um, and you know, it's it, that's deeply concerning. Um, I don't think that the uh, the dysfunction of American politics, and this is one of the arguments that I make in the book, or the dysfunction of all political communities, I don't think that it ultimately uh, debunks the argument that I want to make about the intrinsic goodness of, of, of politics and this kind of political, uh, interaction, just like all of the problems that uh, every single family structure has, doesn't uh, debunk or disprove the intrinsic goodness of family life. Um, On that, if, if possible, Matthew, I'd like to read a, a, an art, a passage from your book that talks about the fact that people are den- tend to denigrate, or it's, it's, well, you don't say this in the book exactly, that's my phraseology, but they tend to 
actually actually lampoon people who believe in in the basic heritage that of the U.S. <laughs> these days. And there's you uh-huh, know they, uh-huh. they say it's hopelessly racist from its very foundations. And I'd like to read a passage from your book that offers, I think, a moving corrective to that rather bilious view of of our nation. You write. There is nothing exploitative or dishonest or Pollyannish about intentionally directing our focus towards things that are good and admirable. It is dishonest not to frankly acknowledge faults, but it's also unwise not to emphasize and illuminate virtue. And you go on, a healthy political culture will intentionally and unapologetically memorialize the best exemplars of its constitutional aspiration, the constitutional aspiration that is, it will attach national identity to its greatest triumphs. While not, while not whitewashing the past and being careful to correct errors going forward, a healthy citizenry will embrace the best of what a country is as, as its definitive identity. And I think that's a very, a very good passage, and I wish that young people would take it to heart and say, it's not good for you to, to loathe your own country. It doesn't benefit anyone to say, well, we're just, we're just rancid from the very origins and the hell, heck with it. But I, I think you, you make a very good argument about that on the on the oh, thank issue. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> well, I was very I was very heartened by that on the on the on the question of um, family that you uh, you write very very interestingly about um, f- three female philosophers. I'm just looking for my okay. Yeah, here we go. In the chapter of your book, which you have an entire chapter on the importance of family, which which. Um, speaks to what you've been discussing today. You discuss the three female thinkers, Susan Muller Aachen, Amy Gutman, mm-hmm. and Robin West. And you say, what, and then you mention Alistair McIntyre in, in this, in this context, you say, what mm-hmm. is, what, what is for Gutman the oppressiveness of habit and authority is for McIntyre, the rationality of tradition. Now you also mention Roger Scruton in, in your book as well, talking about uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, you have to beloved. There's nothing wrong or dysfunctional about loving your your nation or your community, and you also say um, you make the important point. I think about Robin West that she seems to assume that schools provide a an automatic refuge for the inherently inherently oppressive family home setting. And your book to me is timely in that there's a growing campaign at Harvard and other precincts. Right, right. To to say that homeschooling is inherently oppressive. And you and you write well. Public schools are not always the. I mean, you don't say that, but not schools in general are not necessarily the answer for all children. And you are also right of West's disdainful attitude, rather disdainful. That's my wording. Attitude towards parents. And she writes to me. She she writes of children as oppressed blobs rather than people with personality. But you write you write to consider persons apart from their natural relationships is to consider not human beings but conceptual abstractions. And mm. I think you. May- point about that uh, you write that, I mean, you say that liberal theorists and treating children as future citizens and thinking of them as what will this mean to them when they're adults, if you oppress them as children, you say that undermines their current well-being now, children as children now. And I'd like to ask, for example, is the rage for general alteration surgery for children, often against their parents' wishes, an example of this, saying, well, you're denying them, the children, their, their full autonomy, their full civil rights. You're saying, wait a minute, they're children, and you need to treat them as children for their sake. Right, yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, I think that's right. It's, it's um, the, with the, the liberal theorists that I uh, engage in that chapter, a, a fundamental um, 
concern that they have with uh, with the family structure is that um, it it's it the family is necessarily a um, a condition of inequality. Children are are born helpless. They're dependent on their parents. Um, you, you know the the um, the balance. There is a a, a tremendous imbalance, imbalance of power. Um, the, you know, insofar as liberal theory is, is, um, very concerned with the maintenance of equality and, um, and enabling or promoting as early as possible, the autonomy of the individual, um, Liberal liberal theorists. I mean, one one of the preoccupations uh, of these liberal theorists is how to use the um, what what they take to be the kind of neutral, uh, um, um, arbitrative power of the state, or the power of the state to arbitrate and to make a kind of equality between parents and children. And the way that you do that is removing them from the kind of influence of uh, influence of the parents. Uh, and this, I mean, Amy, uh, Amy Gutman uh, says explicitly that, you know, parent, the, the goal of parents is to, is, is fundamentally to turn their children into, uh, in, into essentially uh little versions of themselves. So parents are just kind of trying to replicate themselves. Um, and if they're doing that in conditions where children are very vulnerable then the state needs to step in and prevent them from, uh, you know, prevent, prevent that from happening. The justification for that is often, uh, you know, you sort of need, uh, you know, why should, why should the state, um, be that concerned with, uh, you know, the, the flourishing of the individual or the development of the individual. And oftentimes it's justified by saying, well, this is what's necessary for, um, uh, for a cultivation of the, um, autonomous rational capacity that's necessary in, uh, debate within a free society. So if, if, uh, within, you know, if, if children are raised within particular traditions within a home, then when they become of age, they will have just, they, they will be used to just sort of blindly accepting authority and just do, you know, doing what they're told. If they do what they're told, then, um, then they're not going to be a, a, not going to be prepared to be, independent citizens, uh, and uh, they're not going to be able to engage different viewpoints. So you got to take them out of the home. You need to expose them to all the, you know, to the full range of options available to them, or or the full range of of philosophical, theological, um, I guess they, they wouldn't say theological, but philosophical, you know, different lifestyle options available to them. So that they can sort of become who they want, who they want to be autonomously, and apart from the um, a, apart from this vast imbalance of power um, that that's characteristic of the family, 
Uh, and then they'll be able to be um, free citizens within a society and contribute as a uh, as an autonomous uh, thinker. Um, but I, you know, it it um, I think it is. I think it's foolish um, to think that you can create a social situation in which the um, uh, the vulnerability of children is somehow um, somehow mitigated, really significantly mitigated or done away with. There seems, there's, there's this assumption that when you take them out of the home and when you put them in the, you put them in the school, uh, you know, that they're not, that the, the children aren't vulnerable to the, um, you know, to the influence of their peers, to peer pressure, that they're not vulnerable to the ideological uh, priors of the of their teachers. I mean, the thing that's the that's the thing. Children are just going. You you don't create a more um, equal situation that does away with the vulnerability of children by putting them in you know in this uh, in this different um, in this different social context. And I think I think to see as during the COVID crisis as people are seeing the parents are having to educate their children in the public school at home. I mean, they're, they're accessing that, but they might begin to realize, gosh, there's an awful lot of indoctrination. I did not realize my child was being exposed to at this point. I think it might be uh, really eye opening for many millions of Americans to see what the curriculum actually is at this point. But Right. Know. Yeah. 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 And that's, I mean, that's, you know, I'm, yeah, in that case, you have clear ideological agendas being advanced in the in the public school. I'm kind of in the way I'm talking about it. I'm 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 try, trying to presuppose a kind of uh, you know even if even if in the best um, the best conditions everybody was trying as hard as they could to you know create this sort of totally neutral zone in which uh, children aren't being indoctrinated, but they're really being exposed to everything. And then they just decide, I think even, you know, decide what they're going to do, even in that can, even in that kind of condition, you, you do not, um, you don't alleviate the, the danger and the, and the vulnerability of children. I mean, you know, it's just, um, it's just something that's in, in, in intractable in um, in the immature human person. Um, but as you rightly say, um, most of the time, seldom are we are we actually dealing with the best possible theoretical situation. We're actually dealing with situations where there are um, there are explicit agendas that um, that are being advanced. And you know the 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 claim is that the that the you know these agendas are more healthy for the child than um, than being um, uh, trained in the tradition that their parents have adopted. But I think that that really it really does violence, and this is the thing that I try that I try to demonstrate in the argument that uh, when you pull children away from the, uh, the fundamental educative um, love, really, 
and then the, this the argument that I make that the way that parents love children, there's there's something that's fundamentally uh, educative about that and drawing out and cultivating the conditions for the child to flourish. When you um, intentionally remove children from that and try to supersede that with the authority of the state, uh, you're fundamentally doing violence to a basic human uh, relationship. And this is one of the um, this is one of the real concerns of the natural law tradition that really all natural lawyers agree with, um, you know, whether or not uh, whatever side of the question you come down on with respect to instrumentality, everybody agrees that it is the responsibility of the political community to understand and to protect and facilitate the flourishing of associations like the family. And insofar as this liberal educational theory is oriented to um, oriented to dissolving in many ways, this uh, this ed, this basic educative function of the family, uh, it delegitimizes it delegitimizes the authority of the state in an, in a in an important way. Mm. Well, I or think one under, thing under, undermines. I don't want to I don't want to say fully delegitimizes the authority of the state, but the laws that do that begin to become. Uh, unjust to the extent that they do violence to basic features of the uh, of the familial good. Well, also on the topic of familial good, you write very touchingly in the book at one point that being a parent en- ennobles the parent because that you try to be a better per- person in the eyes of your child that makes you a better person in general. I thought that was a good, an interesting and good point. That if you if you interfere, the more you interfere with the role of the parent, you render them null and impotent. That you're undermining their their value as citizens as well. You just make yeah, them yeah. goalkeepers. Or oh, I'm sorry, I'm doing what? Oh, if if you if you render the parent a, a null actor, then they just become a sort of boarding house person rather than a parent. That the state the state just I'm just saying that right. they would be. Little, little more than looking after the child in terms of feeding him and sending him off to the school. Right, right. Yeah, yeah um, if I could make, make, can I make one more point on this? Absolutely. And I think, yeah, because I, I think this is, um, this is really, uh, this is really important in the uh, kind of in the debate about the nature of the family and education. Um, I mean, everybody on the the liberal theorist and the um, Although someone like Robin West really, you know, when she talk, when she uses language about escaping the family, that that really she it really does put pressure on what I, whether what I was about to say is true. I was going to say everybody acknowledges the good of the the good of the family in some respect. You know, thinks that it's an important institution. What the what the um, liberal theorists that I engage in this in that chapter. Uh, want to do though is say that the family is it's really only a place of emotional or affective flourishing 
And um, yeah, kids need, you know, kids need uh, the emotional support of their mom and dad. They need to know that they've, you know, that they've got a place. They need, you know, people who are crazy about them and that, and that sort of thing. They need the, the history, uh, the shared history and life together. But that's fundamentally an emotional good. Um, and that the public realm within the school is the realm where the rational capacities of the child are um, are developed, and um, and so then the you know kind of the so you know it, it's it, it's sort of love and friendship at home, full rational uh, development and preparation for citizenship happens in the school. And I think that that just fundamentally misunderstands the, it misunderstands the way that rationality is developed and the connection, the connection between, um, between formation of the affections and moral sentiment and the exercise of the rational capacity. Those things are, uh, those things are, are inextricably, uh, connected. And, uh, I mean, this, this goes back to, this goes back to Aristotle and it's something that Alastair McIntyre, uh, elaborates beautifully in ways that I talk about in that chapter, but you know, you don't, um, or to say that the family is not fundamentally doing something that is cultivating the, uh, ability of, uh, children to reach, uh, full rational maturity and not cultivating in them the, uh, the ability to be, as McIntyre says, uh, I think independent rational, uh, rational agents. I'm not exactly sure that's his, that's his term, but it's something like that. Independent rational agents. When you don't recognize that's what's happening in the family, you fundamentally misunderstand how human reason works and is integrated into the whole person. Well, at this point, I want to just remind listeners that we are talking today with Matthew D. Wright about his book, A Vindication of Politics on the Common Good and Human Flourishing. And Matthew, you were just you were mentioning the imagination a little a little bit. And I wanted you you write very um, fascinatingly about Burke and his and his and your your term was um, the moral imagination, the tradition of the moral imagination. Could you discuss mm-hmm. that a little bit? Yes. Yeah. I um in the first um in the first part of the project, just to I guess give a little background um, to this. You know, as I said, Finnis Finnis's work. Um, and the response responses to Finnis, um, I think most notably the response by Michael Pakalik. He has a wonderful article. I think it's uh, the title is just uh, "Is the Political Common Good Instrumental?" Um, it, sir, my my first encounter with Finnis's work and Pakalik and a few others really launched me into this uh, question of the instrumentality or intrinsic goodness of politics and. I worked my way through um, civic friendship, um, but wasn't quite um, wasn't quite satisfied with where the argument ended with with civic friendship because I I um, 
I had a kind of sense that uh, something along the lines of political culture was the was the the right way to go in in um, describing if you're going to give a full description of what politics is and what the good of politics are, uh, what the goods are, you're going going to have to give some account of political culture. And um, it's really not developed, though, within the natural law tradition and the natural law theorists that I was reading. I think it's, uh, you know, there, there are places where Aquinas in the Treatise on Law talks about uh, the customs and traditions within a community. And there's a law, there's a kind of, there's even a lawmaking function uh, that tradition has within a community. But he doesn't develop, he doesn't develop this idea of, of political culture and uh, political traditions that, that develop over time. And it was, it was when I um, read Edmund Burke's reflections on the revolution in France that I really, um, really thought, wow, this is, uh, this is sort of what I've been reaching for, what I've been trying to, you know, where I've, felt like the trajectory of this exploration I was on was headed uh, and Burke really seemed to have the the best um, the best account of of a political culture and the way that it de- way that it develops. And I talk about a tradition of rationality and a tradition of the moral imagination um, the the um, and I guess I should maybe say Burke is oftentimes, uh, thought to be because of his emphasis on uh, um, his emphasis on the authority of tradition and um, and his resistance to abstract rational uh, or abstract reasoning about um, human rights and that sort of thing. Uh, he's and his that he uses the term prejudice to um, to describe the. Um, inclinations that um, citizens should have to act according to particular social forms. Um, um, Because of that, he's often taken to be hostile, not hostile, but just very inconsistent with the natural law tradition. And Alastair McIntyre criticizes him along these lines, thinks that his notion of um, his notion of uh, tradition rejects uh, rejects a um, rejects the role of reason and in, di- in discerning natural goods and being directed by uh, by the natural law uh, there Yuval Levin's uh, book on um, book on Edmund Burke and Thomas Paine also kind of has this reading of uh, of Burke that he's he's fundamentally inconsistent with the natural law. So that was that's a question I had to answer. If I'm you know I'm writing this book within the natural law tradition and I want to sort of bring the culmination of the argument, um, uh, you know, culminate the argument in the thought of Edmund Burke. If, you know, have, have I just sort of uh, done something that just doesn't work? But um, I think actually the in, in you know the last thirty. Uh, 40 years, maybe even going back 60 years of, of the preponderance of scholarship 
on Edmund Burke and Peter Stanless's book on Edmund Burke and the Natural Law. It's really important. But then also Richard Bork's um, uh, recent massive volume on Edmund Burke. They all take him to be, understand him to be, if not a natural lawyer, if not thinking explicitly in natural law terms, at least thinking in a way that's very consistent with the idea of natural law and natural right. Um, so I, so I felt, um, I felt justified in um, sort of using his thought in a way that I take to be consistent with the natural law argument that I'm making. And I respond to the criticisms uh, that McIntyre has of um, of Burke. I think McIntyre fundamentally misunderstands what Burke is doing. And, and, um, and some scholars like Jesse Norman have pointed out that McIntyre, I think, owes more to Burke than he, um, uh, than he acknowledges. But I think Burke, uh, Burke rightly understood, as, at least as far as the tradition of uh, the idea of how reason develops within the traditions of a community. He's not, he's really not that far from what McIntyre, uh, what McIntyre is doing. But as far as the tradition of the, the moral imagination, that's what I put most emphasis on. And the moral imagination is a term that Burke, uh, the, that Burke coined. And uh, he really, what he's doing is, even though he's coining a term, it's, it's, it's his, the moral imagination is his elaboration at the social level of the fundamental insight that I mentioned earlier, going all the way back to Aristotle and Plato, that um, the rash cultivation, cultivation of virtue, cultivation of the rational um, capacity, right action is fundamentally um, related to and dependent on cultivation of uh, appropriate and the right affections and moral sentiment. Um, and um, so what the moral imagination represents for Burke is essentially, and he refers to, he refers to it as a, uh, in one famous passage, he refers to the wardrobe of the moral imagination in the way that the, um, the French revolutionaries um, uh in their total destruction, just kind of wholesale destruction of the uh, of the social forms and institutions in uh, in France, they had essentially well, and and in their desire to create a political society that was uh, uh, cut off from its. Um, Cut off from its history, cut off from its, uh, cut off from the traditions of the of the community. Um, well, on that point, I'd like to ask. In, in in recent months, some commentators have likened the unrest in the streets of the U.S., particularly in Portland. I'm in Oregon. Uh, to the to the months preceding the French Revolution. Do you buy that? And what and what do you think that Burke would say? Well, this is a proto this is a, a, a proto French Revolution, or is that just are we just, oh, I mean, that's giving too much credit to a bunch of thugs who are just rioting because they have nothing else to do or they are serious. Would he, would he have classified them as a, as a threat? 
and and because he was very prescient in his recognition early on. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, I think that uh, I think that insofar as some um, some people are really motivated by um, by the argument that the that the sort of American project is corrupt root and branch. And that there, you know, there kind of has to be there. There has to be a um, a reckoning with the. Yeah, that word is being used a lot. A reckoning, which is kind of right. a threatening. <laughs> it's, not, right. it's not something right. that works well for that middle class people. I would say. But... Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, to to the degree that the, that the desire is to cut. Um, Cut off important to cut us off from important features of um, American political history and American um, American icons, and um, and you know I'm thinking of George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, uh, and so forth. To you know, to the degree that there is a desire to sort of uh, create a new American story de novo. I think, yeah, that's that's the sort of thing that Burke was very concerned about with the um, with the French Revolution and um, and uh, something that he recognized that the American Revolution never intended, never attempted to do in a way that the French Revolution did. There's a wonderful book by David Hackett Fisher called uh, uh, Liberty and Freedom. That's a that's a uh, exploration of the. of the sort of cultural cultural symbols and icons of liberty and freedom throughout American history. And one of the things that Hackett Fisher points out is that the, so there was a symbol of the Liberty tree that was, um, that was important both in the American revolution and in the, and in the French revolution. It started in, in Boston, I believe there, there was a Liberty tree that was a place of gathering, um, in Boston, but also a symbol of of um, of the, uh, the the flourishing of American freedom uh, and the the rights of Englishmen that were growing in the in the American soil. the The symbol in the United States was of a of a mature tree, a large, uh, sometimes a kind of a large oak tree, sometimes more of a evergreen pine tree, but they're always large, mature trees. In the French Revolution, the the Liberty Tree, it was a sapling that they were planting. And it was a clear, it was a, a clear indication in the French Revolution that we that we are doing, we are doing something new. We are we are creating um, this sort that we are creating a new society on the basis of these rights of liberty, equality, and fraternity, and and this is what Burke is pointing to. You have you have destroyed the social foundation, um, the, the the social foundation of this community. You're taking these abstract right abstract ideas that have no content that's been worked out in a in a in a real social context and you're trying to create a community on the basis of that the fundamental difference of the american revolution is 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 symbolized in the maturity the deep um, the deepness of the roots the maturity of the tree that demonstrated for the american 
revolutionaries that we that they are appealing they were appealing to the rights the immemorial rights of Englishmen that they inherited um, as as colonists in the uh, and in, in the formation of their constitutions and the legal order they were, they were, uh, the American Revolution was an attempt to vindicate and regain those rights and to protect the integrity of the institutions. Whereas the, um, the French revolution was an attempt to, um, to start society de novo. And to the degree that, uh, what we're, you know, the, the, uh, what we're encountering now is an attempt to argue that the American project has been, is corrupt to its very core and that the aspirations and ideals have always been um, not just uh, not just very imperfectly realized and sometimes horrendously violated but the you know the I, the ideals have always been a sham and in our corrupt root and branch, I think that that I think that argument is oriented to a kind of fundamental transformation of the American constitutional order. And I think that, and, and I do think that 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 Burke would be very concerned, very concerned about that. Burke is not at all. I mean, he actually he's very much a proponent of 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 change. He and he he says this. He makes this argument that if, if a political community is going to sustain itself, it's going to have to be able to to change and alter. But the the thing that he is concerned about is the sort of change that you um the way that you go about change. And if you go about it in a way that does not um, does not recognize the goodness of what you have inherited and does not seek to um, seek to uh, perfect and to improve and to build upon what you have inherited, you're go- you're actually you're going to destroy much more than you realize. You won't realize it until it's gone. Everything everything that you have destroyed. And, and like you said, he was very prescient in his understanding of where the French Revolution was headed. He wrote the reflections prior to the reign of terror, and he understood that when all of the, all of the, uh, the social forms of, of, uh, of the community were destroyed, you know, there, was no, there was no way for law and order to, uh, no way for law and order to be maintained. And it simply becomes, it simply becomes a contest of power. And I think that's another connection to, um, uh, to the, the place that we are now. Um, you know, if we, if we cannot have, if we cannot have reasoned debate about where we are and where we need to go according to the polit- the political forms that we have inherited in the American constitutional order, then then politics is simply reduced to power. And, you know, that that's a very that's a very precarious position to be in. Well, on the question of power, we're getting towards the end of the interview, unfortunately, because I've enjoyed it very much. But I wanted to ask, uh, in turn, we've discussed the, the, the left and to some extent uh, the right um, in terms of um, conservatism, in terms of Burke. But I wanted to ask you about, you had an interesting passage about John Stuart Mill and his concerns about op- what you put 
what he said was opportunistic cosmopolitanism. And I'd like to discuss, if you wouldn't mind very briefly, because I know that I can't keep you all day, but do you think that, that in the era of COVID and the coronavirus and the and economic and the consequent economic catastrophe that we're living through, is there going to be a resurgence of neoliberalism and globalism in, the, in, in that people are saying, well, we must, we must join the World Health Organization, not only rejoin it, but support it, uh, support it with all our might? Or has the pandemic done the reverse and it's, it's actually going to have a resurgence of respect for national borders and, na- and nation states to say, uh, and, or even within the United States, or is there going to be a regional tension? There already is that California and New York or, or, and other states are saying nobody from an infected state, they say, can, can come into our state. And that's, that's a pretty dramatic development, certainly in our, my lifetime. I've never seen that right. people say outright. So do you think that, how do you say the coronavirus is affecting the debates you were just discussing? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. That's a great question. I'm, um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure of the answer to it. Um, uh, to be honest, I mean, it does seem like um, um, it's certain. I, I, I mean, I would imagine that. Um, my guess would be it's 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 the kind of thing that can be used to argue either direction, um, so that so that those. Um, um, who are interested in advancing a kind of uh, globalism or cosmopolitanism, you know, point to the, you know, the, the fact that we're all interconnected now and, uh, you know, we're, nobody's, nobody's invulnerable to what's going on all the way around the world because the, you know, these, um, these diseases can spread um, you know, spread like wildfire. And, you know, so we've got, we've got to, uh, we got to have organizations to, uh, uh, international organizations to hold everything in check, um, in the opposite direction, you know, it seems like that, that, um, you could, you could also, um, say that the, you know, the vulnerability that particular, uh, communities have to people on the other side of the world who, uh, who may actually be hostile, um, hostile to, to their interest, uh, should should actually breed a greater uh, distrust of international organizations and and promote uh, a, you know a greater a greater insularity or bolster the sovereignty of nations in controlling their borders. That sort of thing. Well, certainly New Zealand has, and she's a leftist prime minister. That's kind of interesting that she's she's not a right wing person, but she said, "Well, we're closing up, we're closing borders, nobody in or out." <laughs> right, that's- right, yeah, yeah. Well, and it may be, it may be the real, you know, the real um, uh, threat to public health and safety may may promote sort of a um, yeah greater uh, greater policing of borders. Um. Yeah, but I'm not. I'm not sure. That's a very interesting question. Well, we'll have. To, I at this point, I just want to give a teaser to the to the readers because we're almost out of time. And I wanted to say that you write at the end of the book the practical upshot of my argument for the intrinsic value of political or association is an affirmation of three basic things. And I'm not going to reveal what the three basic things are because I want people to go out and buy your book and find out what those are. But they're very worth contemplating, and I it's it's a really wonderful book and. Now, I've taken up a lot of your time, and I'd like to ask you the traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is, 
what are you working on now? Oh, yeah. Well, thank you so much, um, Hope, for this uh, this interview. This has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate your um, um, your thoughtful engagement with the book, uh, and it's been it's been really fun discussing. Um, but yeah, what I'm what I'm working, I actually just um, finished a, a year uh, on a fellowship at the James Madison program at Princeton University. Uh, in, uh, actually, Robert George's uh, the program that Robert George uh, directs there. Uh, oh, but absolutely. I, I, yeah, yeah, it's a, just a, a marvelous place. I can't say enough good things about uh, everyone in the Madison program. Um, it was so much fun. But yeah, as I'm working on a, a project on uh, political theology and natural law, working specifically or focusing on the political theology. Uh, Theology of Oliver O'Donovan, who is uh, who is also an emeritus Oxford scholar like uh, John Finnis, but um, uh, O'Donovan is um, is taken to be by some prominent uh, interpreters um, he, of O'Donovan, taken to be um, hostile to the net. Hostile is too strong a word, but but just taken to sort. of debunk uh, the natural law as a uh, as an appropriate or legitimate way for um, Christians to think about um, ethics and politics. And so my uh, my project has been to respond to um, respond to that. I initially thought that I would have more sort of to argue back um, with O'Donovan about. But I'm actually, I think that he's actually less, um, he calls the natural law into less question than he's often taken to. And, and I think there's a lot more um, sort of deep uh, appreciation in his thought for the natural law than is recognized. So, um, yeah, but that's the, that's the thing, that I'm, thing that I'm working on. I teach at a Christian school, uh, Biola University, and so I was um, wanting to think about how to make the case to uh, Protestants who have uh, who've historically often looked askance at natural law and take it to be um, take it to be a Catholic thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wanting I'm wanting to address uh, address those concerns, and I and I think that the way that that or, or a primary way that has to be approached is by uh, really engaging uh, political theology, because p- political theology sort of speaks the natural language of of Protestant evangelical Christians, and um, yeah, and so I think that uh, that natural lawyers, if they want to make the case for uh, r- moral and political reasoning on the basis of uh, universal. Um, universal norms that are accessible to everyone in principle, regardless of um, religious commitment, uh, you really have to engage the political theology. And so that's what I've been, that's what I've been doing. And that, uh, that got that uh, project off the ground. I'm looking forward to uh, working more, working more on it. That's what, could you, could you repeat the name of that author that you're working on just so everyone caught oh, sure, yeah. Oliver, Oliver O'Donovan. Oliver O'Donnell. He's, uh, he's now emeritus from Oxford, but I know he, he lectures and I think is actually still publishing. 
Uh, he is a uh, wonderfully, uh, pro- he's certainly prolific, but he is a uh, he is a thinker like McIntyre, whose uh, um, whose complexity um, and and the the scope of his erudition is is just uh, amazing. So it's, it's, it's been so much fun, uh, reading his, reading his work. He's also, even though he's a, he's a theologian, uh, other political theologians that I've read, I'm sometimes, uh, as a political theorist, uh, disappointed in their ability to, um, I guess, uh, just bl- to put it bluntly to understand politics. Um, <laughs> but, um, uh, O'Donovan is not that, that way. At least in 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 my estimation, he has a lot of. He's a theologian, but he is a sophisticated, um, I think, uh, political theorist, and uh, just it has a lot of command of the uh, of the Western tradition and the um, tradition within um, uh, politi- Christian political theology. So, yeah, if your readers are not familiar. I'm sorry, listeners not familiar uh, with him. He's he's definitely someone uh, someone to read, um, even though his his work is his work is very uh, very dense and um, it's it's tough sledding, but it really it really repays careful study. He's awesome. Well, your book is is very is not dense. It's erudite, but it's approachable. So that's the way I would, I would urge general readers like myself. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a theologian or a philosopher. And I, I've learned a lot from it. So. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> I, I am. I'm delighted to hear that hope. Thanks so much. Oh, good. Well, and with that, I will just thank the scholar we've been talking to today, Matthew D. Wright, author of A Vindication of Politics on the Common Good and Human Flourishing. And thank you listeners. Thanks everyone. Bye-bye. <laughs>